Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about invasive plants versus native plants. And I'm going to talk about three specific invasive plants, barberry, rose, wild rose, and knotweed. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. This episode about invasive plants is spurred by a local event that's coming up, um, which I'm going to talk about briefly the event for local folks, and then I'll talk about invasive versus native plants and introduce the book Invasive Plant Medicine by Timothy Lee Scott, and then I'll dive into three common plants that are considered invasive but are also medicinal and beneficial for their ecosystems, which are wild rose, barberry, and knotweed. I also just want to say uh, thank you so much for people who have already started to pre-order my new book, Drinkable Healing Herbal Infusions, which is available for pre-order on Amazon. I am so grateful for the outpouring of support from my friends from near and far and from distant and recent parts of my life. It feels really wonderful. And also from you, my audience and listeners and people who appreciate what I put out into the world in the herbal realm. So if you were one of the folks who contacted me um, a couple weeks ago, requesting a review copy of the book. Uh, If you haven't already, check your email. I did send an email out to you um, with a link and a code where you can get that early copy of the book. And so please, uh, if you don't see it, please contact me and we can get that figured out. 
I want to start out just by saying I'm really excited for this local event at the island that the Island Heritage Trust, which is a land trust nonprofit organization based on Deer Isle, where I live, that they have combined efforts with Fogtown Brewing Company in Ellsworth, Maine. And they are, they've created a, Fogtown has created a Pilsner beer that's infused with three invasive plant species, which I'll be talking about today, that were harvested from land preserves on the island by volunteers of the Island Heritage Trust. So the beer is infused with rose hips, barberries, and knotweed roots. And it will be available to sample and purchase on Friday, May 13th at Fogtown Brewing in Ellsworth um, from 3 to 8 p.m. So if you are local, um, come enjoy an urban-fused beer and support keeping land open and land available to the public. All proceeds um, from that beer brew batch will go directly to the Island Heritage Trust. I will be there so you can come and say hi to me as well and we can chat about herbs and what it means to be invasive versus a native plant, which is really what I want to dive into a bit today uh, on the podcast. So let's dig into that. I have always had um, mixed feelings about this whole invasive versus native plant initiative trend, what what have you. And um, so I will say that I am not an expert in this realm. I have a relatively limited depth of knowledge, and I haven't spent a lot of time really diving into this concept, mostly because it kind of frustrates me. (laughs) Um, But I do want to just share with you my thoughts on it. And I'm also open to what your thoughts are. Feel free to email me or direct message me on Instagram and let me know what you think. But partly my resistance to this whole concept of you know, let's get rid of invasive plants and let's only support native plants. Native plants are the best is partly due to my love of weeds and to all plants and to really appreciating um, the their lives and the virtues that they offer, even though sometimes they can be annoying uh, or difficult for humans to deal with. But I think that if we are able to change our perspective and our paradigm and our relationship to the plants and to our natural environment that they will be seen more as allies than as hindrances. So I also, I really trust in migration and movement and expansion. And it's It happens with all life on this planet and even partial life. I mean, viruses aren't really life, but, you know, viruses move around, bacteria, microbes move around the whole planet. Um, People, animals, birds, 
and plants. And maybe it's a little harder to understand the migration of plants because they don't have legs. Um, but they have other ways of migrating, and it's usually um, on hosts, whether the host is the wind carrying seeds or on boats that are traveling across oceans, on the bottoms of shoes, in animals' bellies or birds' bellies. Plants have really evolved and adapted to be able to spread their populations around the world based on their seed dispersal mechanisms. And I think that that is natural. And even though things were different in the past as far as ecosystems and where plants were living and happy and thriving and how that has changed and how plants have moved into other parts of the world, I personally think is a natural progression. I mean, how could it not be? Because it is exist. It exists. And we can, when we take a very human centric perspective and we say, well, you know, humans moved these plants, therefore it's not natural. And therefore you know, we need to eradicate now these, these invasive plants and only support ones that were here before colonizers came and started moving plants around with them. Um, then I, th I think it's kind of a very skewed perspective because it's really looking at humans as being outside of nature and outside of the natural process, which is a very common human perspective but it's not necessarily a true human perspective. So I really think that plants are meant to expand and move around the world, whether it's by humans, birds, other animals, the wind, the movement of glaciers over time. You know, it's been happening from before humans were around, and it will continue to happen after humans are gone. Plants have been here for so long, and from as far as I know and can tell, and again, I do have limited knowledge on this, but they've always been moving around, and that's just the nature of Gaia, the Earth, the living being that is Earth and that is continually forming into, a, I believe, a more coherent and grown living being like a little off the topic but sometimes when I picture the earth and this Gaia principle the earth as one large living being that we are just a very teeny tiny small part of just as the microbes in our gut are a very small part yet very effective part of our body um Again, these are the patterns that echo out throughout, but that the earth is, I think it's almost still being born. It's still coming to its full potential and it's still growing and evolving. And I think that with the movement of life around the earth and the connecting of life and evolution of life, I think is really, um, you know, the earth coming into its full beingness. 
if you've heard, I don't know if you've heard of the global brain hypothesis. It's a relatively old one. I studied it in college and that was, and it was even old then. But there's like a really old documentary, The Global Brain, that's based on an even older book, The Global Brain. And it's really just talking about, um, you know, this process and this perspective. So check that out if you can find it. Basically, when, when we're talking about plants being native versus um, invasive, it often is in relation to humans, like the defining line happens like 500 years ago in, in America anyway, when and throughout when the colonizers really started um, coming in and bringing plants with them. And from there on, um, at different times, you know, government, the at least, I, you know, the American government has either been very pro, like, let's bring in a whole bunch of plants from other places to improve life here, or, and now it's more like, let's eradicate a whole bunch of plants. And again, I think it's just a very, you know, narrow perspective. And unfortunately, I mean, colonization, especially in the human realm has had, you know, really detrimental effects on cultures and populations that they moved in on. And that is a serious issue. And I think that, you know, we definitely, I mean, I can speak as Americans are coming more to terms with that and reevaluating that and um, talking about that much more now, even in the past five to 10 years than ever before. So I was really kind of made to think a lot about this concept when, you know, five or six years ago, I was um, hired to design and install a garden for um, some people on the island who had just bought a house. And their neighbors were very insistent that I sit down and speak with them because they wanted to make sure that I only planted native plants. Like they were very much involved with this whole movement of eradicating invasives, only planting, planting natives. And they were very into um, pollinators. Like they, they were, or maybe, yeah, they were college professors and they um, loved moths and that was kind of their their thing. So they wanted to make sure that for whatever reason, I mean, this is like, you know, they lived like probably a quarter mile down the road from the property that I was working on, but it had all once been one big um, original property. And so they wanted to make sure that I stuck with the program. So I had to go and sit with this woman. She had no idea who I was or what my perspective was, or even that I was an herbalist. And honestly, she did not even care. But I... And so my neighbor, or the person who hired me, her neighbor wanting to keep the peace, paid for me to go and sit down with her and basically be lectured on the plants that I was allowed to plant. And what I was really trying to get at with her is like, well, how do you even define, how do you even define what is a native plant? Is it native to America, native to North America, native to Deer Isle? since when since when was when is the defining line native to i mean how far back are we going to go 
here. And if we do want native plants, like why don't we just all live in a spruce forest? I mean, that's pretty much what we're <laughs> what we're living in. Why even garden? Why even like change the landscape? And her response to that was, well, but then what would you do with the weeds? <laughs> so, and I'd be like, well, I, I love weeds. I make medicine with them. But so anyway, it was a very interesting conversation, but it really kind of got me thinking. So I did get a plant on, um, you know, native plants of Maine or something. And the book has, it has a lot of different for gardens, you know, it has like a lot of different plants, plants that I do see just kind of growing around naturally in this area, but also plants that I know I would never see naturally growing in this area. And so it really makes me think of like, you know, like this ecosystem on this island is very different, even from the ecosystem over the bridge. It's not very different, but it's slightly different. And then when you take a boat and you go off to one of the other smaller islands off of this island, it's even a more unique ecosystem with plants that I would see there, but I wouldn't see here on this island. So it's like, how do we really define these lines? And it's very, um, it's a big enigma to me, really. So I was sitting down with her and I was like, well, so you know, these are some plants that I would like to plant. And these are plants that I definitely would not plant. I would never plant forsythias. Um, I don't even think we can buy forsythias anymore in Maine, even though they're all over. Um, I would consider that an invasive plant. Um, a lot of like the really invasive, I mean, I would never plant Japanese barberry. It's everywhere. Um, and it's really hard to eradicate, but it was originally brought here as a landscape plant. So I wouldn't plant those, but I was like, well, what do you feel about, how do you feel about Rosa rugosa? Like the common beach rose that's around here. It's such a beautiful plant. It offers so much medicine, food for animals and insects. And she's like, oh yeah, no, that would be fine. And I'm like, well, that is not native. <laughs> so I think in some ways, like, a lot of people, like they just, it's like whatever's convenient for them. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of, oh, it's like this twisted mindset. I don't really know. But so I, I personally prefer wild over native. Um, and, you know, I think that this fear or this wanting to not trust wild, because wild means chaotic. It means constant change. It means out of our control, right? It's like human, and I talked about this a couple podcasts ago, but I, you know, humans, at least, you know, again, I can only speak to Americans, but like we have this fear of the wild and, and I think it goes really deep down. I mean, humans like for our safety as we evolved, like when we were hunters and gatherers and not at the top of the food chain, um, we really had to have a fear of the wild because anything could, you know, could harm us. And I think that that still is like really strong in our, maybe even in our instincts as far as, you know, well, plants can give us rashes or they could poison us or, 
you know, animals could eat us or a big tornado could rip through and kill us. So I understand this fear of the wild, but it's interesting. I think we need to rein it in and not fear the wild progression of things. There are some plants that I would not purposefully plant and that I can see have become very invasive. Um, But I would also appreciate them for what they are. And I really would not want to spill toxic poisons um, or rip up soil and ecosystems to get rid of these invasive plants, because that obviously has its own detrimental effects. And I think much worse detrimental effects. If we really can look at these invasive plants and see what they are offering us, I think we will be in a lot better place within our own minds and in connection with our ecosystem that we are a part of and in connection with the plants as well. So there's this great book um, called Invasive Plant Medicine, The Ecological Benefits and Healing Abilities of Invasives. And it is by Timothy Lee Scott with a foreword by Stephen Herod Buner. And definitely check it out if you have a chance. There's a couple parts that I want to read uh, from it that I find to be, you know, really, um, really well well written and to really kind of expand on this perspective that maybe I'm not really doing a very good job of explaining my perspective on. So this is in the uh, foreword by Stephen Herod Buner, who always has a very, um, a lot to say, really, I'd say, and really mind-bending ways of looking at things. So he says, uh, we need to understand that nature doesn't make mistakes, that earth is at minimum, 3.5 billion years old. And the earth has been engaging in this process a lot longer than our species has existed. We have to understand that what we are looking at predates the human, that Gaian timelines are much longer than ours. We need to understand that processes that no scientists understand are occurring on both very large and very small scales. We have to step outside the human paradigm if we are to understand what is occurring with the appearance and behavior of any plant we encounter. So when we see quote unquote invasive plants moving wholesale into new ecosystems, we need to ask in all humility, what are they doing and what is their purpose? The book that you now hold in your hands is part of a counter-movement that holds at its core that very question. Unlike too many other books, it actually struggles with the very difficult process of finding an answer. It is crucial and necessary look at the importance of invasive plants. These plants, it turns out, play crucial parts in the restoration of our ecosystems. They are expressions of Gaia, sent to work in specific ways, in specific places that need what they uniquely can do. 
They are, rather than destructive pests, ecological interventions generated out of the vast, long-scale movements of the earth intended to solve specific ecological problems. So that was Stephen Herod Buner. And then, um, yeah, so the book kind of goes into introducing the weed and what weeds are. Um, and then he goes into the war on plants. And he, the, there's this really interesting uh, framework that he talks about. So he talks about how at one point, like we were really, humans were really, or Americans were really interested in bringing more plants into um, the country to improve our ecosystems, our living standards, what have you. But then after a while, things began to change. And we really started seeing plants as really bad. A lot of wild plants, that is. And it was really um, kind of based on agricultural systems, ranches, and, you know, golf courses. And there are, you know, he says that now there's billions of dollars that are spent annually to control plants. What does he say? He says, and this was in 2006, so this was kind of a while ago, the federal government allocated more than $1 billion to the Department of Agriculture to fight invasive species with the majority spent on control efforts and rapid response efforts. A grand total of $722 million were spent for herbicides and pesticides. And he has these really fun quotes. He said, some of the great hysterics about invasive species. Uh, National Wildlife Refuge Association. We are experiencing an invasive species crisis. Invasive species will take over America's wildlife refuges unless we act now. And from the interagency task force of the federal government scientists in 2005, one of the greatest threats to the Earth's biological diversity, America is under siege by invasive species. And then uh, David Quammen, invasion biologist, ecological mayhem caused by non-native species. And then another invasion biologist, Daniel Simberloth, an insidious and pervasive conservation problem. Former U.S. Secretary of Interior Gail Norton. These are like something from a bad horror movie. And Patton and Erickson. All exotics should be treated as threats unless proven otherwise. And then NASA. The single most forbidden formidable threat of natural disaster of the 21st century. Invasive plants is what they're talking about. I mean, these are really strong, strong emotions and feelings and words about 
plants. And I think that it echoes a pattern in how we are also treating humans right now that are trying to migrate and find better places to live. And I think we have to take a real hard look at this, this warlike mentality. And, you know, I mean, one of the classic things when people talk about, oh, we want only native species. It's like, well, are you native to America? Like, I know I'm not native to America. I know, you know, my ancestors came here from afar and most Americans' ancestors came here from afar. And so who are we to start talking about eradicating all invasives? And then humans as a whole on an ecosystem um, are quite invasive, way more so than plants, where a lot of these like quote-unquote invasive plants actually have really protective um, actions on the ecosystem, even though they might be protecting the ecosystem from human damage and from humans themselves. One thing that I have found really frustrating, because um, Hypericum, St. John's wort, St. John's wort, same plant, one of my all-time favorite plants, one of the many, um, is considered a noxious weed, uh, an invasive plant, especially out west and especially in uh, ranching areas. So because of this, the government decided to import a non-native insect, this like little beetle that's like a gold bronzy color beetle and that, that eats hypericum flowers. And so it stops the plant from reproducing. And this really makes me mad because they are here on the island and in my garden, even though they were introduced out west in California, and they have decimated patches of hypericum for me in the past. And um, yeah, very frustrating. It's like, let's just, can we just leave things alone, please? <laughs> ay, ay, ay. We don't have to always play God and think that we know what's best because we don't. And a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, invasive plants like kudzu, I mean, kudzu, that's a pretty serious issue, kudzu in the South. I remember driving down to New Orleans and just seeing walls of this vine down the highways, just totally suffocating the trees. And um, that was brought here on purpose by the government for soil erosion control. The very same thing with Japanese knotweed um, was brought here to for erosion control and has also become very hard to manage and maintain. So we just, you know, it's funny because like we bring the plants over here because we think we're going to do good and then it doesn't do good, and then we got to spray poisons on them or import some other insect or something that's going to cause them a challenge, and then that's going to have effects on the natural environment as well. Okay, so 
that's my general take on invasives. And, and I know there's a lot more there. So I highly recommend this book, Invasive Plant Medicine by Timothy Lee Scott. Dive deeper and there's lots of information and debated perspectives out there on this topic. But before we continue with the show, I want to talk a little bit about Noom. Noom uses the latest in behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching on their platform to help millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. And for me, so I've been working with Noom for maybe three weeks now, and it's had its frustrating moments. I mean, I have a goal where I'd like to lose some weight, um, and I would like to improve my eating habits, especially my on-the-go eating habits, and uh, my general calorie to exercise ratio, <laughs> and which is starting to take place now that the gardening season has started. Um, and I don't feel like I have a lot of weight that I want to lose, but I, but there is some, and I'm sure many people can relate to this. And um, just for my own health and my continued health, because I know it can be a slippery slope. Um, especially as we age, metabolism definitely slows down and our bodies change. And I'm really finding that I need to change with my body. My habits need to change with my body. Um, and where I, I've always been fit and I was always also able to eat mostly whatever I wanted in whatever quantity I wanted. And it didn't affect me drastically, but that is changing. So I really am finding that habits are really hard to change. Um, and so it, is, it does take a mind shift, a paradigm shift, a different way of looking at food and understanding um, the ratios or the amounts of food and the types of food to eat. So there's lots of healthy food, but some of it is very um, dense in calories. So you get a lot of calories for a very small amount of food, like almonds, say. Almonds is something, you know, you can eat a few of them, but when you start eating them by the handfuls, it's like really, really high in calories. So they're super healthy, but I just need to like shift that. And so Noom has really helped me to understand these patterns and to really like look at the food and understand the caloric density and really understand the um, amounts of certain types of food that I can eat where I used to eat. I used to not even think about it. So that's one thing that I have found very valuable um, about working with Noom. So you can start building better habits for healthier long-term results as well. You can sign up for your trial at noom.com slash believe. Again, that's noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. And I have been, um, well, you know, every podcast I've I'm using this part as my part of my accountability. So thank you for being along on this ride from with me. And I like to kind of share a, a meal that I've been making that I find to be really um, 
healthful. And so one thing that is that I have found is nice is the smoothie. Um, and so my daughter had a sore throat yesterday. She got tested. She's negative. She's back at school. She's fine. Um, she was definitely on tons of elderberry syrup that I made for her yesterday. And um, I also made a smoothie, which the recipe is also in my new book, uh, Drinkable Healing Herbal Infusions, which is um, available for pre-order and then will be officially on sale on May 24th. And so this is an immune-boosting smoothie, but it's also just really highly nutritious. So it's um, whole milk yogurt, and that's like the high-calorie part, right? But it's also quite filling. So uh, whole milk, plain, organic yogurt, and then um, frozen berries and frozen cherries. You can do whatever you like, but I found frozen cherries in the grocery store. They're so good. Um Rose hip powder, which I'm going to be talking about that briefly today, but um, I also have a full podcast on roses, which inspired me to get rose hip powder, really highly nutritious food and beneficial for the immune system. So put a couple tablespoons of rose hip powder in the smoothie and a couple tablespoons of astragalus root powder in the smoothie. And um, a little bit of Newman's own um, organic pink lemonade for like a little sweetness and liquid and then um, blend it up and it was so, oh you can also put um, you can put elderberry syrup in there which I did for Isla since she was sick or not she wasn't sick but she was you could tell her immune system was working hard and then I also, what you could do instead of putting in the lemonade, <clears throat> because that's added sugar and calories for sure, is you can make a astragalus root infusion where you basically, you can either decoct it or just make a strong infusion that you let sit for four to eight hours. So you have it on hand and then you add that as the liquid to your smoothie for added immune support. And I found that that I had a I had like a pint of the smoothie, and it really carried me through into the afternoon. I found it to be quite filling and satisfying. So that is my food for the food for food tip for the week. Okay, so now let's get into the real interesting stuff. I just want to briefly talk about. Uh, Roses, barberries, and knotweed. So I did do a full episode on rose as episode 39, if you want to check that out. So I'll just talk about it briefly here. But I was compiling this information for the event at Fogtown Brewery in Ellsworth. And so I thought, hey, might as well talk about it on the podcast. So roses, when I think of roses, and these were the hips that were put into this this batch of beer, uh, or, or infused into the beer. Um, but they are, I think of rose for the heart, for cardiovascular support, and the hips especially are just like very nutritious food, very high in bioflavonoids, which are really important for heart health, and also very high in vitamin C, which is important for immune health. Um, and then just really high in a full range of vitamins and minerals. 
and it tastes they taste good they're like slightly sour they're not really sweet so you can sweeten them you can make like a rose hip syrup um, where you like decoct down the rose hips you like simmer them for a long time and then strain out the decoction and then add a bunch of honey to it and then the petals they use the hips I think that like petal rose petal infused beer could be really interesting as well so there's all different types of wild roses we are lucky enough to live in a place where rosa rugosa the beach rose grows abundantly and those i find they have like the biggest hips they're almost like large crab apple size and or super super tiny apple size and they have um really fragrant petals. There's other wild roses where you don't get as much bang for your harvest is the only problem. So it takes a lot of you know, either the hips are super small and you really have to like simmer them for a long time to get any goodness from them or the petals are super, super tiny and delicate. Um, and so it just takes a lot of petals to dry and make anything with or to work with fresh. But basically any rose um, can be used as long as it's not sprayed with fungicides like your classic florist roses often are. I also think of rose as being really beneficial for the skin, especially the petals. And both the petals and hips are very anti-inflammatory and also really beneficial for reproductive health and high in antioxidants. So if you have wild rose growing, um, definitely connect with it and see what fun herbal concoctions and remedies you can make with it. Now, the barberry, do you know this Japanese barberry? It actually is a really common landscape plant um, <clears throat> or it was, I don't really even know if they still sell it. I kind of hope that they don't because it has spread like wildfire. The birds love to eat the berries, so it is a great food for wildlife. But then the birds spread the berries around in like nice little piles of fertilizer, <laughs> a.k.a. you know what. So they, um, they spread like crazy. I have a, an abundance of barberry and we have been slowly or we I say my husband has been you know hacking away and really trying to limit them from totally taking over um, you do hear that they can I mean they they make like a really thicket then they have really sharp barbs on them and they're like a, a relatively small shrub um, and they, I hear that they make good homes and protections for mice and mice carry ticks and ticks carry lime. And so a lot of people are also afraid of barberry because they feel like it can breed um, ecosystems where ticks can thrive. So that is something to be aware of that I have heard of. Um, but one really interesting and wonderful thing about the barberry is when you start, even if you just clip the twigs um, or when you dig it up, it has this bright, bright, brilliant yellow color in it. The root, the stems, 
and it's extremely bitter and very astringent, and it's full of berberine. Berberine is a chemical constituent that is found in golden seal and gold thread to uh, endangered plants that have been overharvested because they are because they have this constituent in them. Berberine. Um, so the barberry, its botanical name is berberus. I think that usually when a chemical constituent, I don't know this for sure in this case, but I can assume it um, that the chemical constituent is often named after the plant that it is first discovered in. So berberine would have likely been first discovered in the berberus genus of plants, which barberry is a species of. It makes a wonderful um, replacement for golden seal and gold thread, which is what, and it grows so abundantly and you can get so much plant material for each plant. So it boggles my mind. I mean, obviously every plant is different and it's going to have slightly different properties, but where so many people um, know of golden seal, use golden seal as an antimicrobial, antibacterial, you'll see it in formulas with echinacea still. Um, and there's this and it was harvested almost to extinction because golden seal is a native plant that um, lives in forests and grows really slowly and it produces a relatively small root and it's a very small plant and it's really not sustainable to harvest it in such large amounts where barberry is like, it's like, please, yes, harvest it, harvest as much as you possibly can and you still won't get rid of it. So what is this? And this is like a whole nother podcast topic, but like, what is this with the human or dare I say, probably more likely American mindset of like, we have to have this like, hard to find, hard to grow, unique, like, special rare plant for our medicine. You know, instead of being like, oh, like this plant grows abundantly everywhere. Like let's really honor that, honor that plant for its medicine instead of wanting to wage war on it. That's really a twisted, twisted mindset in my personal opinion. So in this case, the berries were, were put into the beer brew. Um, the berries are highly antioxidant. You can eat them. They are like slightly bitter, slightly sweet. They do have a seed in them. It's not like you're going to like go out there like blackberries and just eat handfuls of them. But you can, um, people make jams or jellies out of them. I like to put them in bitter blends, uh, like a digestive bitters, put some barberry berries and also like cut up some twigs and sticks and put them in there. So because they are so bitter, they aid in digestion. The berries also help to reduce skin inflammation and any sort of like red, itchy, rashy skin. And they are known to help normalize blood pressure. And I guess if you eat too many of them, they could be a laxative. The root is uh, very bitter and 
very astringent. So it would especially be beneficial if you had like a intestinal infection because they can really tighten the mucous membranes and they could actually probably relieve diarrhea. Um, but they also can really kill microbes and they're so bitter that they can also aid in digestion as well. The Japanese knotweed, these are like two plants. Japanese barberry is what I originally knew it as, but I guess it is now called barberry. And I'm pretty sure the knotweed is also known as Japanese knotweed. And it's funny because the Rosa rugosa, also I was told, um, came here from Japan, but uh, that could be hearsay. I'm not sure, but it's just an interesting side note. So <clears throat> the knotweed is also, I think, called um, people relate it to bamboo. It has like a very kind of bamboo look because it has these um, segments in the stem. And the shoots are edible. Every year it dies back to the ground and the shoots come up every spring and the leaves are kind of pointed at the tip and are really um, tender and they kind of wrap around the shoot stalk, the stem of the shoot, as it p shoots up. And it can be harvested when it's, you know, under a foot in size, when it's still tender. And it can be cooked and used. Uh, it has a very similar taste to rhubarb. So people would maybe make, you know, knotweed, strawberry pie or or you could saute it and have it as a side vegetable then it would have this like sweet sour kind of flavor to it the root um is not necessarily like yummy edible but it is medicinal and it's extremely hard so if you want to harvest the knotweed root which you would do in the fall once ideally once all of the plant material has died back down to the ground or in the very early spring when the shoots are just starting to peak up from the ground um, you can harvest the very large and very hard root and it's recommended that you you know when you go out to the knotweed patch to harvest the root that you bring your bucket of water to give it a quick rinse you bring your knife or a small machete <laughs> and a cutting board and you, your your tincture making materials, your jar and your vodka, and you harvest the root. And in that moment, you clean it and you chop it up because as soon as it starts to dry, it becomes very hard and it becomes so hard that it, you can't really chop it up um, once it is dried. So I personally have only eaten the shoots of the knotweed. I have not worked with it uh, medicinally, and I have not harvested the root myself. But from what I hear, um, Stephen Herod Buner actually is who brought it, it to the general population's awareness that it could be very beneficial for people who are dealing with chronic Lyme and who have a nervous system that is being affected by the chronic Lyme. So the root in general is really beneficial for neurological health. And I think that there have also been some scientific research into it, um, helping people who have 
uh, dementia or, you know, er, are in early stages of Alzheimer's and just really helping to maintain the health of the neurological tissues. And in treating neurodegenerative diseases. So that is something to check on. Another interesting thing about this root is that it's high in the antioxidant resveratrol, which is the same heart-healthy antioxidant that is in wine or grapes. So that's interesting. And which I think that that actually antioxidant is what helps helps to stave off neurodegeneration. It also is um, supports estrogenic levels in the body and is uh, antimicrobial. So I'm not quite sure exactly how people work with it for Lyme, but I think it's a relatively low dose herb. I don't think it's something that you need to take large amounts of and it's, and it's the tincture that is worked with in that sense. Or maybe you can make a beer with the root. <laughs> um, so really the point of this is, you know, so many plants offer so many benefits. And it's interesting that, you know, Lyme and dementia and Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration are huge, huge issues right now in America. And that this plant that has become invasive and that we just can't get rid of even as much as people try um, and that people are so maligned against um, really has so much medicine and really beneficial things that it can offer us. So I, you know, I really think it's important that we shift our paradigm when we look at plants and step out of ourselves and out of our fear of losing control and trust in nature, <clears throat> trust in kindness and see where it takes us. And if you're going to be in Ellsworth or the Ellsworth area on May 13th, Friday from three to eight, come say hi. Uh, I probably won't be there till four, but come say hi at the Fogtown Brewery. Um, and Otherwise, check out my book, um, Drinkable Peeling Herbal Infusions. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, and it has a lot of recipes in it. And my, my goal with this book, as you know, I really like simples. So when the publishing company asked me to write a book about um, that had 100 recipes focused on 15 herbs um, and you know, seven or eight body systems. It was a fun task that I was up to, and I kept almost all of the recipes to three ingredients or less. Most of them are just one ingredient or two ingredients. Because one of the things that I find frustrating when I buy uh, herb books that have a lot of recipes in them is you look at the recipes and it's got five to 10 herbs in it in that one recipe. And at that point, it just, it already becomes daunting, a daunting task, unaccessible. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to buy a tablespoon of this herb, a tablespoon of that herb. Like, how do I even, where do I go? How do I do that? So the whole point of this book, my book, Drinkable Healing Herbal Infusions is 
to offer you lots of different ways to prepare, a, you know, 15 plus a few more different herbs um, to support health throughout the body. And the chapters go by um, body system. So there's, you know, a chapter for immune health, a chapter for nervous system health, a chapter for emotional health, um, and so on. And it was really fun. And it's, it's a bunch of different types of herbal remedies that you can drink. So I would love for you to check that out and feel free to connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, my podcast, um, email me and say hi. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you. And until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and most importantly, have fun with herbs, even the invasive ones. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.